This is Meatless, a podcast about eating. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show will ask the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, I talked to cookbook author and editorial director of Jari Mag, Lucas Volger. Lucas began his career in food as a teenager, working in a bakery in his native Boise, Idaho, before moving to New York City for college and getting into a restaurant kitchen. But he was studying literature, with a focus on gender and sexuality. All of that has come together in Jari, a queer food journal. He has also published three vegetarian cookbooks on veggie burgers, vegetarian dinners, and bowl meals, with another forthcoming. For a time, he ran the veggie burger line made by Lucas. We talked about how the veggie burger landscape has changed, why he's eating 60% vegetarian these days, and the evolution of Jari. Recording? Cool. Um, hi, Lucas. Thank you for being here. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Um, I wanted, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, um, from where I was born through age 18 when I left for college. Um, I grew up on what I sort of think of as a standard American diet at the time. There was like always a animal protein in the center of the plate and then like a salad and like scallop, boxed scallop, scalloped potatoes or something like that. We had a lot of like bagged Caesar salads with the dressing pouches in them. And, um, my dad grilled a lot. Um, but, um, it was very, and like lunches, I always packed my own lunch and it was like a peanut butter and honey sandwich and this little like thing of jello chocolate pudding and a string cheese. And, um, I had some like baby carrots or something. I always did like my lunches were very routine, and then like my breakfast was one of those chewy chocolate peanut butter um, granola. Oh god, bars. those were good. They were really good. <laughs> yeah. um, how, why did you pack your own lunches? I was picky. I never liked the um, hot. I don't think I ever had hot lunch. And once I left like elementary school, did you? When did you start cooking? I um, well, I always sort of cooked with my mom. I was always inclined to do that, and I used to. Um, like sort of, I remember growing up, I must've been like 11 or 12. I like always was drawn to cookbooks and the recipes always seemed so fun. So with like my, my neighborhood friends while our parents were away at work, we'd be like, oh, let's make, here's this recipe for like peppermint candies. And we decided to like make from like Betty Crocker or one of those like old sort of like all-inclusive cookbooks and not realizing, you know, the, the recipe makes it look so simple, but the, so we end up with this whole mess of like peppermint sugar <laughs> goo all over the kitchen. But I always liked that. And then... um and whenever my mom entertained, I always enjoyed helping her out. And then when I was junior in high school, I started working summers, uh, June, maybe sophomore in high school, I started working summers at a bread bakery oh. where um, I was like looking for summer work and I couldn't get like, I wanted to wait tables and I wanted to do retail and I couldn't get any of those jobs because I think I wasn't, I was a little dorky looking. Um, and <laughs> I got a job at this bakery and I was supposed to just like help like make sandwiches and like work the counter. And it was a bread bakery called, um, 
Stone Mill Bread Company, and they had like seven or eight different types of bread, and they were like big, like sandwich loaves. Loaves that wasn't like artisan bread at all. Um, but then they did scones and biscotti and muffins, and like they serviced this one chain of gro- of um, coffee stores called Moxie Java around. So it was pretty high volume for a pretty small space, and I got to. Um, I sort of started helping out, like portioning out the muffins and like cutting up the scones. And, and over the course of the summers that I worked there, I got like more and more included in the, um, pastry making. And Mm -hmm. I just really loved the scale of it, like pounds and pounds of butter on the table and like working with the big mixers and, um, and then making the biscotti. There was like one night where we had this crisis where it was like finishing for the day and then, okay. And we've got like whatever the orders for biscotti ready for pickup. There's a guy who do deliveries early in the morning and, and then we realized we didn't have anything to like <laughs> fulfill the orders. And so I like happily volu- volunteered to like work all night and make all the biscotti. And it was completely thrilling and li- <laughs> listening to the music and like being there when the, when the bread guys came in really early in the, in, in the morning. And, um, I just like enjoyed the environment a lot. And you worked as a line cook when you were in college? Yeah. I, I line cook. Um, I started as a prep cook there and then was for there for a little over a year. Um, there's a place on the Upper East Side called uh, Blue Grotto. There's a really young chef. He lives like right out of culinary school and he was taking over for some older, more established chef. And I came at a time when he was starting to like build his own team. And so there was like this rift between the old and the new. And But um, because I was going to school full time, I was only there like three days a week. But, um, again, I just like loved, I wasn't, oh, well, I, since I worked brunch, I was doing some baking, but, um, it was just like the scale of it was really fun. I remember spending like all this time cleaning squid or like, I don't know, what would we have like pitting olives or just like making salad dressings and, and then occasionally help out on the line. But, um, I was a little bit more of a prep cook and then the line cook sort of happened towards the end. And what were you studying in school? I had literature with the focus on gender and sexuality studies. Uh, how and now well now you've brought it all full circle with your magazine. Yeah, exactly. And well, my first job, the reason I stopped cooking at the restaurant was, well, it was like really bad pay and really bad hours and really bad conditions. But um, I got an internship with the Feminist Press, which is the university press at City mm-hmm. University of New York, and I went to school at Hunter, which is also a CUNY school. Um, and then they ended up hiring me when I was like finishing my last semester of school. I was only there part time. So I was like working full time at the publisher, the feminist press and then finishing school. Um, yeah, but like gender and sexuality was what I studied through a literature lens. Right. And how did you find vegetarianism? When did that happen? That started in college when I, um, I went to school in Oregon for two years at a place called Willamette University. Um, and it just, I think it was, this must have been, well, it was like 2000. Um, and I'm trying to, like, I've been asked a number of times, like, why? And I really can't even remember why. It just seemed like a sense, I don't even remember my friends doing it. I don't, I think it, I became aware of, like, sort of the environmental implications of mm-hmm. eating meat and consuming meat. Um, and so that seemed like a really good reason to me. And also, I was just, I've been thinking a lot about, like, how my I, my mother's, diets had like shaped my perception of healthy eating and Mm -hmm. for her it was always like less is better than more food and so vegetarian food automatically seemed like you're sort of eating less (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of when I started and um and then I've been you know off and on for like years since then okay where are you right now I had read an interview from 2016 where you said you were 95 percent vegetarian um right now I feel like I'm probably more like 60 percent vegetarian I've been eating a lot more fish 
um, I've been like going through this, like, uh, like going to the gym a lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and which is a really new thing for me, but it's, um, I guess, uh, trying to like feed my body and for the, the amount that I'm like, it's like I'm doing strength training for the first time ever. And I was like doing my like normal diet of like 95%. And I was the trainer that I work with. He was, I was like, I feel like I'm doing this all the time. And I'm like, not really like seeing the results. And he's like, well, what are you eating? And I told him, he's like, you need to be eating like 10 times as much food. Um, and so I'm not really doing that, but it's, that's really what's kind of thrown off the, the vegetarian eating. Right. What do you, where do you fall ethically on like making that decision? Um, in terms of? In terms of putting your, your workout routine over deciding not to eat. Yeah, I totally, I, I struggle with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, um, well, I guess I, I have like the ethics of eating meat isn't like of, I guess the animal rights aspect Mm -hmm. of it is something that I haven't like, that's not, that's not really my angle into it. So for me, it's always been, I think the environmental implications are to me very, very selling. And then also it's just been such an affordable way to eat well. Um, and that I think has driven the way that I eat. I just like endlessly creative. Um, I really like shopping at the farmers. It's kind of like, it's been a pretty easy path for me to follow and just incorporating a little bit more animal protein is has, I guess, I don't know. It's something that I struggle with cause I feel guilty about it. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't really know. I haven't figured out the right way to articulate right, the, yeah. how I'm, how I'm resolving the guilt. No, me either. I mean, I've, after being vegan and now being vegetarian and mostly just eating eggs and because I've also started going to the gym and so I'm like, Oh, what can I do to actually feel like I'm eating protein and not eat tofu or things that are constant, constant, the the plant-based these like I've met these like weightlifters that are, they're all plant-based and they just eat food all all the time. Yeah. 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 And like, I've done that. Like I, there was a time where I worked out a lot and was vegan and was like, okay, I have to have a smoothie with this and I have to have these powders and I have to put hemp seed in everything I eat. And it's like, (laughs) I don't want to live like that. Like, can I just eat an egg? Like, I promise it'll be from a happy chicken. I I guess that's one way that I've sort of like tempered um, the guilt is just by, I'm pretty careful about how I source any of this stuff, like all my vegetables, but certainly any of the meats and eggs and of course. Animal products. Yeah. <clears throat> so ha- your first cookbook was not the Veggie Burger book or was it the Veggie Burger? It was, bur- it was veggie the Veggie Burger, burger book. book. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, so I worked in publishing for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, for the last year or two of that, I was, it was in a freelance capacity, mostly helping with like production um, and doing some like proofreading and copy editing and stuff. And a friend that I had worked with before was starting up his own publishing imprint mm-hmm. or his own publishing company called The Experiment. And he just emailed me one day. I was like, do you know anybody that could write a book about veggie burgers? And I was like, oh, let me think about that. And as I did, I was like, actually, like, I've been making veggie burgers. I think I have, like, kind of an interesting perspective on this. I'm just going to do a proposal. Yeah. And so I put it together and um, sent that over to him, and it worked out 
Oh, that's yeah. So I got, <laughs> I, got, I feel that's another source of guilt. Like when I, I meet people that are like trying so hard to get cookbooks published, and it happened very like easily for me. But I guess coming from the inside that way, right, right, right. Um, and what kind of veggie burgers were you making initially? Mostly bean ones. Okay. Um, I would make some tofu ones, but it was mostly like black bean or red bean. Cool. And then you had a, the Made by Lucas line of veggie burgers? Yeah. I launched that in, oh God, I think it was like 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was um, writing the book. I So when I first started writing the book, I like started by going to the grocery store and buying all the frozen veggie burgers and tasting them. And then I developed all my recipes. And then I went back and tasted them all again just because I had kind of forgotten. And I was just like, I mean, this is it, obviously, but I was shocked by like how much better my homemade veggie right. burgers were than what was available at the grocery store. And so always that had like been in my head. Um, and so then I was working at this place, 61 Local in Cobble Hill. Um, and I was had this like loose idea for developing like a local, you know, sort of premium veggie burger. And um, Dave Liotti, who's the owner, he let me use the kitchen and start testing stuff out and putting it on the menu. Mm-hmm. And that's where I just developed, that's where I kind of developed the product. So it was like, I was scaling up at 621 Local. First it was making, you know, a dozen or so veggie burgers. And then it was getting up higher and higher. And like I found um, that I was spending all this time just like shaping the patties. And (laughs) so, and then I had this like novel idea. I was like, oh, what if you just like put the mix in a little tub and then let people like shape them and make, you know, whatever size they want and like treat this as ground meat you know, the same way that, mm-hmm. but it would be as versatile as like ground meat was. Um, and, and then, um, I started working out of like a kitchen up in Queens and then I started working with a co-packer upstate and, and did that for about three years. Um, what were the biggest challenges of doing that kind of a business? Oh, it's so many. It was <laughs> like, I know it was, so, it was just so hard. The perishability was really, really hard. Um, this was like, the the way the thing that got me excited about this veggie burger was that it was designed to taste like vegetables. Right. It was like it got beets from farmers upstate and carrots and parsnips and kale. Um, and it was like a veggie burger that's uh, that was our tagline: vegetable veggie burgers that taste like vegetables. Nice. And um, it made it what it meant um, was that it was just as perishable as vegetables. Right. <laughs> so we would like freeze them and then it's called slacking it out of the grocery store. So we'd like deliver the product frozen and then they would put it on the shelf where it would thaw out. And it had three weeks, which is kind of an astonishing amount of time. Yeah. I couldn't believe that we got that much time, but it was like not nearly enough for what the grocery store needs in right. order to like, cause they want to keep the shelves full all the time. And it's um, that the perishability was just was really challenging with that. Right. Um, it was also just so taxing. It's like going around doing demos and <laughs> you're like, I went into it because I love the food and right. I love the product. And now I realize, like if you're starting a food business, you just really like love business because yeah. it's about figuring out how to do the growth and the scaling and all the stuff that's like, the food is such a small part of it. Right. Do you think you were a bit ahead of the trend with veggie burgers? I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, I was always aware that like people... Um, <laughs> It resonated so much when I would talk about the product, like, oh, these are veggie burgers that taste like vegetables, that people were very, like, turned off by the idea of, like, fake meat right. or the or, or it's something that's engineered to taste like meat. Um, and so that, I thought, was, like, kind of a major selling point. Um, and I saw that it resonated with people. Um, 
I think that like I'm still like keeping an eye on the grocery store. I haven't seen anything like this yeah. pop up yet. I think it's just really you know one of the other things I learned is like there are two ways to sort of go into the grocery store with a product. One is to do something completely different, and which is what I did, and it like means it's very easy to get in mm-hmm. because they're like, oh yeah, we don't have anything like this. We'd love to you know bring you into Whole Whole Foods throughout the Northeast. Um, and then the other is to do something that has this like well-worn right. sales track of a well-worn path for like sales. And in that case, it's hard because you got to like carve or carve out your own like identity. Um, but once you going in with a new product, you're like doing so much education. Like it was really, um, I think, I don't know. I think if there had been like maybe one or two other products like mine, we would have like been able to like pull each other. Right, up. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like we had been getting, away from the fake meat thing and now like Coming the tech back. bros are yeah. just bringing us all back to it and yeah. it's like why are you doing this <laughs> i know and then i'm like questioning it's like well maybe it's not such a bad thing i, I don't know right. i've read all kinds of things about like lab meat and it seems like there are certainly like ways that good could come of, come of it right right um, right yeah and i'm still dubious of it. i yeah I don't, <laughs> it's not stuff that i really want to eat I yeah guess. That's, <laughs> have I you say. tasted it i yet? haven't yeah, I was. I read a. I read that whole Carol Adams book called Burger, uh-huh. and um, which you got a mention. Yeah, in. you said. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then yeah, her she ends on a very positive and optimistic note about like Impossible Burgers and about you know GQ giving Superiority Burger like best burger of the year and how this looks like you know a, a new time for. But I feel like all of this is just reinforcing kind of old ideas. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, we want the the burger that's like meat, even though it costs so much money to make it in a lab. And, you know, we want the burger made by the the fine dining chef and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just, it's complicated. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um and then you wrote you've written two other cookbooks. Right. And how were those processes as easy as the first one or um well the second book was t- focused on vegetarian entrees and it was like kind of a rush job. The veggie burger book is still like my best selling oh, wow. book. Um and I think based on that success my publisher at the time was like ready to sign something up and so we kind of like threw together this idea and um I still like that book but I kind of sometimes I wish it could disappear <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I just, I didn't really, I didn't like sell and there's like, I look at it now, I'm like, there's so many other things that I, different ways I would do this. Right. I don't love the title anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I, but, but most of all just made me realize like, I don't want to like be a type of cookbook author that's like putting out one book a year. Right, right, right. Um, or at that kind of pace. Yeah. Did you take, so bowl is a lot more considered, you would say? <laughs> yeah. I spent a lot more time on yeah. that. I s- the Entrees book came out in 2012, I think, and Bowl came out in 2016. Oh, wow. So I worked on a proposal for a year or so, um, maybe a little more than that, you know, off and on. And then I spent the process of selling it took some time. And then it was like, yeah, I, I spent more than a year on, it seems like it was like five years between like when I started working on that and when the book came out, but there was all kinds of other things happening. At right, that time. right, right. What inspired Bowl? I had this that amazing vegetarian ramen at Chuko, and I just wanted to figure out how to make it at home. <laughs> um, and it was it wasn't even like I wasn't even thinking about a cookbook. I just thought it was so good, and I'd never had like vegetarian ramen that was incorporated the seasonality and had this like completely delicious broth and really felt like refined um, in an accessible way. 
And so I just started playing around at home and then I was like, oh, you know, I haven't really had good vegetarian pho. Maybe I should like play around with that as well. And, um, and it kind of led then to bibimbap. And then I was like, oh, these all have like a bowl in common. And, <laughs> and there's this bowl thing happening. And so like maybe that's kind of what the book is. And that's right. how it all came to be. That's great. How was the response to that one? It was, I got so lucky because there were lots of bowl books that came <laughs> up and mine happened to be the first. Right, right, right. Or for the first for that wave of bowl food. Um, and so it was, pretty, it was great. Right, right, right. What is your re- recipe development process like? I usually, um, oftentimes I'll just be kind of like cooking with what I've got and I'll make something and I'll like it. I'm like, oh, that was good. And then I'll sort of jot down what I'd done. Um, I like to always have when I'm like formally uh, recipe developing, I like to have like a document that I'm working with. So mm-hmm. once I have those notes, then I'll go and pr- have my like laptop in the kitchen or have my notebook in the kitchen and try to cook it again and do proper, you know, process of measurements and times and right, right, all right. that stuff. Do you, you've had separate photographers for your books? Yeah. Or do you, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of coming up a lot with cookbook authors is like whether they shoot their own book or Oh, I'm so not a photographer. That's like, (laughs) I'm so, yeah, I'm really glad that that's not a skill that I have. I feel like they're so taken advantage of. Oh, yeah. It's so much work. The shoots are so much work. Yeah. No, I can't imagine doing both at the same time. It seems, yeah. yeah. Um, So you recently did 28 Days of Oatmeal in Uh, February. What was the inspiration behind that? Uh. Let's see. It was like um, in January, it was like the start of the year sort of came and then it was like already the start of the year had passed. I was like, oh, I wanted to like do something. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, I guess if I did it for February, I could do that. And then I was like, if it was cold weather, I'd like eat oatmeal a lot. And I was like, and I love been getting into like savory oatmeals and I'd always like that better than sweet oatmeals anyway. I was like, oh, you know what? Why don't I just like try a different oatmeal every day and make a hashtag out of it? (laughs) (laughs) That was, yeah, it was organic in that way what makes for a good savory oatmeal do you think um i think it's like bowls it's like the combination of you have i this sounds so i've said i'm sure if you've read any of it I've, i'm quoting myself verbatim, <laughs> but like the you have like your your body vegetables mm-hmm. which in oatmeal is like leafy greens is like chard or kale or something or accent vegetables which might be like um some shaved radish or some sprouts or something like that and then a nice garnish, which could be a spice blend or some toasted nuts and then like a protein, which is the egg. And so <laughs> I feel like it just kind of has like the right topping has like you create like a full meal on top of your right, oatmeal, right, right. which includes your oatmeal. Okay. Yeah. And then you made a zine out of all these recipes. Yeah. Which was definitely not the plan at the beginning. It's just <laughs> I had agreed to um, run the New York City Half Marathon for team housing works. Mm-hmm. And I had to raise $1,500 and... Um, between like Kickstarters that I've done and I've Jari stuff, I felt like I'm constantly asking for me, people for money for stuff. And so I was like, okay, what can I do that might like make people more inclined to right. just give me $15? And um, then I had the idea to do a zine. Was that your first zine? <laughs> yeah, it actually oh, wow. was. Well, I don't know. It depends on how you define a right. zine. <laughs> I've always been into like self-publishing. Um, I'd be certainly like online and then like growing up, I like making little like recipe booklets and stuff. Oh, uh, when did you start? When did you make your first recipe booklet? I did one. Um, well, with my like mom's recipes, it was like a Mother's Day project mm-hmm. that we did at school, and then I kind of took it to an extreme. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, can you tell me a bit about how Jari came about and and how it's evolved? Yeah, um, I have 
so I've sort of like seen food. At, we launched Atari in 2015, and then the five or so years before that, I've sort of seen food from these various angles, from the publishing side, a little bit from the from the kitchen side and the front of house, back of house side, um, to some extent of the media side, just as like doing publicity for my books. And I'd always been aware that it's been this like magnet for mm-hmm. gay people, mm-hmm. um, the, the food in general has. And then um, I wanted to, I thought there should be like a community for that. And it was one that I really wanted to participate in and mm-hmm. be part of. And then at the same time, I've been like over the, my own like education as a cook has been like going back and reading James Beard and Craig Clayton, and like then realizing like as a footnote that some of these people are like gay guys mm-hmm. and significant figures and the fact that they're being gay is, feels like a buried fact. Right. Um, and so it seemed like there was a lot of history there that could be explored. Um, and it was just, and then I, these were things just kind of like in my head. And then I read that article on the, the cut. It was coining the term, the duty, the oh dude God. foodie. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> and I thought it was really funny and I liked it, but, um, it that made me think, Oh, maybe there should be a food magazine called Goody, like a gay foodie. <laughs> um, and then, and then I met, um, Alex who, and Steve, who, um, we, co- we, founded the magazine together and uh when i met them i mentioned this idea for like a gay food magazine i was like oh we should talk about that and that's kind of like one thing led to the another right 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 and what does the name or a reference to it comes from the vernacular uh polari would use in the west sort of western europe during Mm -hmm. the 20th century mid 20th century um sort of like theater scene it's it's like um sort of like the ballroom language of the ballroom that kind of vernacular but um, jari in Polari means food. And like to zhuzh your hair is a Polari word or Morrissey's bona drag is that's Polari. Um, yeah. Cool. How do you feel about Morrissey these days? You know, I was never a huge okay. Morrissey fan. <laughs> I need to like, I feel like I have some like work to do to catch up. <laughs> it, it's okay. Okay. I <laughs> I've been aware of like him causing some scandals. <laughs> um, you wrote a piece for Taste about whether cookbooks should have nutritional facts. And um, I was wondering if you feel any pressure or like a stigma around doing vegetarian cookbooks and, and the idea of health and, and how attached that is to vegetarianism and whether you've you've tried to work against that or work with it or how you feel about that generally. Yeah, that's like exactly where that piece came from. It was, I would get um, emails from people ask me why I don't include nutrition facts in my mm-hmm. cookbooks. And um, it had never occurred to me. It was like, I, you know, I, I worked in restaurants and I certainly like, I feel good when I eat vegetarian food. And to that extent, it feels like healthy right. to me. But um, I'd never thought of it on that sort of granular nutrition level. Um, and then um, I've heard, it's something that I would see as comments on like Heidi Swanson's blog or other vegetarian blogs that to me, it was like, this is, not really like a health website, but people want this information. Right. So, um, yeah, I'd always like coming from like a little bit of a restaurant background or like learning to cook in restaurants and like loving all kinds of cookbooks. It, um, I just wanted to, yeah, I, I, I don't think of vegetarian food as like per se healthy cooking. It was for me, it's always just about it being delicious and right. a recipe that like offers something new in terms of technique or mm-hmm. combination of ingredients and, and is like doable for the general home cook. Right, right, right. Um, what was the response like to that piece? Um, well, I think taste being the publication, like they're sort of a foodie forward right. rather than health. It was like everybody was like, no, don't include nutrition. <laughs> but I, I had put, put a question on Facebook where I was asking, That's and that's where I realized that there might be more of a, a 
a story to explore. But I just asked my Facebook friends if they thought that cookbooks should include nutritional information. And it was like so split without like no one was really <laughs> indulging a gray area at all. And it was like anybody who's ever been, like people who do Weight Watcher points or people who are on any kind of diet, they're like, oh, my God, would you please just include this in a cookbook? Because <laughs> then I don't have to go do it through my app or right, online. Right, right. And then everybody else is like, no, you're you're ruining my cookbook experience. <laughs> and, and it was like I have sort of, you know, as I was saying, I've been now thinking about food in a little bit more right. of like a granular granular level than I had before. And I was like, well, why, you know, we include all these dumb conventions and cookbooks that, you know, like all this front matter and the pantry items and like little like serving sizes that really mean nothing. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't you include nutritional information? It's like, you know, food is fuel for our body. It would kind of make sense. Yeah. Um, and then ended up coming to a different conclusion once they realized that how um, different people um, interact with that information is sometimes in complicated ways. Yeah. No, it certainly well, in the magazine, um, has there been a piece that you, you've been really proud to publish? Yeah, there have been lots of them. Um, one of the, f the first piece that I um, commissioned was John Birdsall's story, Straight Up Passing, about looking at the state of chefs being out in restaurant kitchens. And it's funny to think about it now because that was like 2015. And he, he sort of begins the piece with a pride thing that he was... A, pride um, section of the I think the alt weekly that he was working on in San Francisco and reaching out to all these people that like he knew all these chefs that were lesbians and gay or gay and they um, didn't want to participate in it um, and then so he was, recalls this and then finds some chefs to talk to and and found that the sort of the it, nothing things that hadn't really changed that much in, right. in the I can't remember how many years it had been but enough years um, and he I don't. You you should read it. It's up yeah, on yeah, joyride.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, looking back, that was only 2015, and I feel like at that time we had to do so much work to try to find like queer chefs, um, gay chefs, and we we're like we had this whole process of like going through the, who they were following on Instagram and who was following them back. <laughs> and like, okay, this person is probably. And now we like get pitches from you know publicists and stuff. Right, so right, it's right. Like, I think the dynamic, you know, it certainly isn't the liability that like chefs used to think that it was right, before, right, right. but. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm proud of publishing that story because then it went on to win a James Beard right, Award. Right, right, right. Um, there's other ones. We did this great piece with Neil Santos, who lives in, um, he's mostly a photographer, he works mostly as a photographer, he lives in Philadelphia. And um, he profiles these five different people who are urban farmers in Philly. Um, and it's just, I, I hadn't really thought about like the legacy of urban farming and what it has to do with like the migration um, from the South um, after the Civil War and through the 20th century. And um, I thought that, and then the, the sort of social justice undercurrent of urban farming and how they are so much more than just farms, but community centers mm -hmm. and like hosting these. It was really, and like these are all queer people who are doing them sort right, of at right, the right. helm of, of these great farms in, um, in Philly. Um, we also did, let's see, there's a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> they all um, so threaten to blur together sometimes. Um, we did for our second issue a really fun piece that Mike Albo wrote. He's um, a, like a performer and like sort of a, a humor writer, mm -hmm. but he... Um, wrote about like the the life and death of gay restaurants. So looking at like Big Cup and Chelsea, and it's it's kind of fun. Um, it's a bit of a light piece, but it, it's a really fun piece that that um, 
people seem to enjoy. Awesome. Um, what do you think accounts for that like shift since 2015, since you launched? I think that, um, well, I mean, I've been thinking, so we, one of the conversations that Steve, my magazine partner and I have a lot is like, how do we, like the stories that as, as I was framing them when we launched are now I'm seeing them framed like the same way in Bon Appetit and Food right. and Wine. So it's like, I know Bon Appetit is doing it through like their healthy-ish and basically, um, sub vertical or verticals or whatever they're called. But it's like, there's one about like I, the profile of Charlie who I'm a queer trans person, um, chef of color. And this is what it's like to be a line cook and food and wine just did this great story about drag brunch. And I've saw Natalie, something. That, that Natalie wrote yeah. that. It was a great piece, <laughs> but it was like, Oh, now this is like, what, how do we have to like do something? Like, what can we do this like different now? That this right, is like right. What all these other food magazines are doing. Um, so I think that I mean, part of it is like how the appetite for food writing is such, I think, very identity driven right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so it's like some a chef's identity, whether it's like a female chef or a gay queer chef, um, that becomes like the angle for the yeah. story, whereas it used to be like the food or the restaurant right. or some other aspect of their story. Um, I don't that's yeah, that's what yeah. I think it is. Yeah, no, it's it's very strange. I remember when I I wrote a piece about a trans chef in Puerto Rico in 2015. I love that piece. Oh, thank you. But I barely touched on their identity. Other, I used a gender neutral pronoun, but didn't point to it. And then it it only came up very late in the piece. But then, of course, they framed it munchies as this trans chef, and it's like, why did you do that? <laughs> but now it's like everything is like that. So it's like it, you have a complicated relationship with. The selling, I guess. Yeah. I think what we have at Jari that's different from Bon Appetit is like we know who our audience is. Yes. And so it's like we get to write directly for them. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, So you – Jari has been doing some kind of like more work in community spaces or uh, you did a soup night recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how how is that stuff coming about and what has the response been? It's good. So, uh, oh yeah, you had, and you had asked me about the evolution of Jari. But so we launched as a gay food magazine. Right. Our tagline was "Men plus food plus men." <laughs> um, and it was, we were three cisgendered gay guys, and we thought we should, you know, this is what we can speak for. Yeah. Um, and then pretty soon after launching, it was like, oh, this is going to be like a lot better if we. And I mean, the story, the magazine is going to be a lot better to right. like expand that scope. And so we dropped the "Men plus food plus men," and now it's a queer food journal. And um, I've spent in the past two years, a lot of time just kind of on the ground because it's not, I mean, not that my network has ever been like all gay men, but um, I certainly, I know that like the gay and lesbian scene in New York and the queer scene that that there's some overlap, but there's also like there's separate scenes. Right. um, I think Jari just coming out twice a year can like serve everyone. Right. But um, I've been spending a lot of time getting to know people and, you know, partnering on events. And so we did do a queer soup night that like Liz Alpern is one of the organizers of that, um, which was really fun. And then we just did this um, fundraiser for the Dream Cafe at the Allied Media right, Conference right, right. in Detroit. Um, <clears throat> it's been good. I think that our our original readership is a little has been a little thrown off we've tried to address it uh, well first we tried to just kind of like slowly <laughs> just right. just incorporate a little bit more um like queer content rather than gay men because well i mean if you look at our instagram and we, we launched and it was like very easy to get engagement doing like hot shirtless person <laughs> with a tray of cupcakes or something right. um 
and then now we're trying to be a, lot, a little bit more considered about that. And we, I think we've lost some of our original people, but it's making for much better stories and a much better magazine, I, mm-hmm. I think, um, and something that will have a lot more like value in, in the right, years right, to come. Right. And yeah, um, not you don't have to name a name, but like, has anyone kind of gotten mad at you guys for this this change? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I haven't heard directly from anybody. Okay, that's good. I did hear from one writer who was like, I know you had to do that. <laughs> but <laughs> as if we're like just being PC. But right, right, right. I don't know. <laughs> I went, I've learned also you just like can't please everybody. So of course. just do what, what your gut <laughs> says to do. Yes. Um, so what are you working on um, right now? Are you working on a new cookbook? I'm working on a um, new cookbook. It's called Start Simple. It's a building block cooking. So the idea is you... Rather than like menu planning for the entire week, you just remember to pick up these like core set of building blocks. Right, right, right. Um, and you have them on hand in your fridge and your pantry, and then you can do all these other. There's like very simple recipes, the slightly more elaborate ones, but um, it's a intended to help simplify weeknight cooking. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! And how far along are you on it? Uh, I'm not. I'm not very far. <laughs> I'm maybe like a third of the way through the recipes at this point. Okay, cool. When can that? When will that be out? Do you think? Probably. F- It'll be either fall 2019 or winter 2020. Cool, cool. Um, I remembered what I was going to say before, which was those pantry sections in a cookbook. Like, are those, like, necessary? I think it's, like, it's like a liability thing. It's, like, you want to – I've never – I mean, it's never something I've, like, talked to my editors about, but – it's like you have you want you want there to be like this sort of invisible footnote for like neutral oil and then like <laughs> neutral or neutral tasting oil and then you can like go back to the pantry and be like well here's why here's the neutral oils to taste right. or I guess and it kind of helps to like lay the groundwork for the ingredients that appear or the everything you know if you need like in um in bowl you it's really important to like rinse the noodles after you cook them, which you don't often do when you're like making Italian right, style right. pasta. But I, and you know, when you go eat ramen, they have these like, I can't, now I can't remember what they're called, but they have these great devices. You can like pull each single serving and, you know, push it into the boiling water, pull it out, rinse it off, dunk it, get the starch off and then reheat it really quickly before mm-hmm. putting it in the bowl. And I figured out this way to like sort of jerry rig that at home. Um, but it required, um, getting your little like um, an esteem or insert. So just having a place in the pantry item to explain right. like this is what this is going to be for. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so to you, is cooking a political act? I had not, you know, to be completely honest, it's not something that I had really thought about until the last couple of years. It's, I've always loved cook. I, I think of myself as a an aspirationally creative person. Like if if creativity is on one side and pragmatism is on the other, like I lean so far on the pragma- pragmatic side that I long to be a more creative thinker and a more creative person. But um, in the end, I just kind of like to get shit done. And what I really like about cookbooks is the whole um, application aspect of them. And I like servicey journalism. And so it's always been like, I assume I, my reader has this problem and, Oftentimes it's that they just want to eat more vegetables and they don't know how. And I teach these classes and I know that these are actual problems that people have. Mm-hmm. But um, I've always, it's it's always just been about like helping the reader out and giving them some new ideas in the kitchen and new ways to make it easier and new ways to make it, um, make, make dinner or lunch or breakfast um, more satisfying. Um, but I think with 
and even with Jari, it wasn't necessarily that I, certainly there was like a political subtext to it, but um, we're like a sort of a lushly designed magazine. And it was, I think we, when, especially when we started, we thought of it kind of as like a lifestyle magazine mm -hmm. more than a political one. And it's just, um, that's always been to me a more seductive way to, to bring somebody in. But um, in the past couple of years, it's, I mean, with Bowl, I think about Bowl and like me being the person to write about vegetarian ramen. And I now see that it's like problematic in mm -hmm. ways. And it didn't, it really didn't occur to me. It was just like, oh, I know that people want delicious vegetarian ramen and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And, and so I did. Mm -hmm. um, but now I, now I think that I would approach that completely differently, um, just having been made aware of the complications of it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Lucas. Oh, thank you, thank Alicia. Thank you.